This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. lack of a green thumb has kept you from becoming a plant parent, you're not alone, I promise. That's all about to change because Farmer Nick is here to help on this week's episode of Good Together. We're resharing a past episode featuring Nick Katsumpas. It's going to teach you the best plants for beginners, how to avoid making common mistakes that can kill your plants, and more. So let's get into it. Hi, Nick. Welcome to Good Together. We're so excited to have you. Thanks so much for having me on, Laura. Appreciate it. Yes. So listeners, if you are like me and you have issues keeping up with your plant care around the house, you're going to love today's interview with Nick. Um, So Nick, um, i.e. Farmer Nick on Instagram, is a plantrepreneur, I love that term, (laughs) um, (laughs) who is uh, passionate about all things green. So as a full-time plant coach and urban farmer, Nick's mission is to give people the knowledge and confidence they need to create their own green spaces in the pursuit of regenerative environmental action and justice, which I love. Um, Nick has more than 80 clients in New York and LA, and he designs houseplant, agriculture, and landscape installations. He's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Goop, and also the Netflix original series, The Big Flower Fight, which I've had a chance to look at. So yes, so excited to have you um, and help, um, you know, our listeners become better plant moms and pops, <laughs> if you will. Exactly. I mean, so many of us have just become plant parents for the first time during the pandemic. So plants are really experiencing a huge boom right now. Yes, they are. Um, actually, because of the pandemic, like you mentioned, um, we've seen that houseplant sales have really been on the rise. Um, and, you know, everyone's wanted to bring a little bit of nature into their own homes as we've been kind of cooped up. So I wonder if you could get us started by telling me about your career as a full-time plant coach. Um, you know, how did you get into that? And really, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, you know, so in fact, nothing I did from ages zero to 23 had anything to do with plants. <laughs> uh, I, I went to Tufts University in Boston. I played baseball there. I was a personal trainer. I studied psychology and entrepreneurship. And I said, you know what? I'm going to live this very stereotypical businessman in New York City lifestyle. I grew up right above the city, uh, had a job uh, set up for me working for IBM. And I was living at home, you know, saving money on rent, got to pay back those student loans. Mm-hmm. And my mom said, listen, you know, if you're going to be here rent free, you got to do something around the house. I was like, all <laughs> right, well, like as all good moms sh- should require. Right? Yes. <laughs> so she said, you know, with your background in health and you love food and nutrition, you love being outside. Why don't you start a garden? And I had never touched a plant. I had never owned a plant, but she convinced me and went to you know, the local nursery, picked up mm-hmm. some soil, built a few raised beds, as many of us have started doing this past year, and just put a couple of tomatoes in the ground. And 
I kid you not, from the moment that first tomato turned red, I, I was just hooked. And each year the garden just grew more and more robust. And, you know, instead of Christmas gifts, I was like, send me seed catalogs and I want the latest gardening books and the tools and this and that. And it was just such a fulfilling and enriching experience for me. And lived at home for about three years and moved into the city and kind of went into shock because you go from this suburban, beautiful green lifestyle, picking fruits and vegetables from your own backyard to a concrete box. And I was not myself. I was struggling mentally, physically, emotionally. And I did the only thing that made sense, which was start buying plants and one house plant turned into two house plant turned into 88 house plants. <laughs> and <laughs> it just, that became, you know, what I wanted to do and began sharing the journey on social media, Instagram. This was relatively new to the time. There weren't many plant influencers then. And I had a bunch of people saying, Hey, you know, could you come to my apartment? Could you help me with my plants? Could you mm-hmm. design my garden? And, you know, that's how the, the farmer Nick business germinated. That's awesome. I love to hear that. And uh, I totally, um, you know, identify with the experience of moving from the suburbs into the city. Um, I think a lot of us have done that. And I, I think oftentimes we forget how much our attitudes are really influenced by plants and nature. And I feel like, especially now during the pandemic, we've all been so cooped up kind of regardless of where we are. It's been such a nice thing as it gets warmer for us to be able to kind of go outside and walk and just experience things. Um, but you know, in the winter, we don't often have that, that luxury. So being able to bring things into your home is really interesting. And, you know, um, I loved it that people started calling you, right? So did you just start, uh, did people start calling you with like kind of, you know, emergencies and you kind of go over and help diagnose or <laughs> well, how do you work with people right now? <laughs> the, the number of plant emergency calls I get, I just, it's countless. <laughs> you know, it's, for the most part, people will, you know, come to me and say, Hey Nick, I, I just moved into an apartment or a new home. I've got a terrace. I've got a beautiful window. I've got all this space. What do I do? And I, I kind of walk them through a three-step process. And that first starts with assessing your space. And I like to kind of view my space as an ecosystem because you're bringing in living things into your own living, breathing ecosystem. And mm-hmm. by acknowledging that, you know, there is, this is a life, life force. There is a living being here other than myself gets you out of the mindset of viewing it as furniture. So many yep. people view it as just put the fiddle leaf fig there. Cause Bobby from queer, Eye put it there. Yeah, that's looks great. right. <laughs> that's totally right. Yeah, and that's why the fiddle leaf fig, they just get abused and they're really a tricky houseplant for the average beginner. So I start by assessing the space, looking at things like exposure, which way do your windows face? Do you have pets? Do you have a uh, partner who waters too much? <laughs> you know, yep. there, There's so many factors in your space that can affect what plants will thrive. And once we do that assessment together, um, this is my favorite part and this is where people really fall in love with the plants is I, I take them plant shopping. And I would take them to the nurseries and the plant shops in New York City and here in LA and seeing them fall in love for the first time and just be like, oh my God, I knew we were here to to buy five plants, but I want 20. Yeah. Like it's just so fulfilling because I think we forget as humans that like we're animals. <laughs> We've <Yes>. been <laughs> developing in nature and actually this is a true stat for 99.99% of human existence, we have evolved in nature. And only in the last 0.01% did we decide, you know what, screw all that beautiful nature stuff. Let's go live in big cities and yep. expect to be happy. And I think people realize 
that there's a missing piece there. And they see that when they go plant shopping. And once we bring those plants home, we repot them, we style them, we go over care tips because, you know, if I do my job right, they should never call me again. <laughs> there you that. go. I love that. Right? <laughs> well, just leave me alone. If I yes. do it right, you're self-sufficient. And because, you know, there, there's no point in, in bringing plants into your home that aren't going to really thrive in that way. So it's just, it's such a fun process and people really get excited about it. So what are some, as you go to the store with folks, um, what are some of the top plants you like to recommend for beginners? Um, and maybe you can talk a, f- a little bit about some of those more trendy ones like fiddle leaf fig. Mm. Um, I am, I would consider myself, um, you know, a plant intermediate, like I'm not as bad as I used to be. I think I've gotten much better at, at keeping mine healthy, but I did have a fiddle leaf fig, um, that I think was one, it was a different variety than the ones you typically see on TV with like a big thick trunk. Mine was kind of puny. I managed to keep it alive for years, but it like never grew. Right. So I'd be curious to know if you can kind of give us a primer on, you know, plants people should be looking for and maybe ones to, I don't know if we want to say avoid, but be, be, uh, you know, more uh, conscious about bringing into our homes. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny you mention that because I, I don't like putting uh, plants in the categories of like low, medium, or high maintenance because it all depends on your environment. What yep. could be high maintenance for you could be low maintenance for me. So I want us to, in general, as a as a plant society, start viewing plants as what is specific and personal to, to my routine and my home. And I think there's, there's sort of three that I, I sort of call the holy trinity of, of beginner plant parenting, and, and they are the, the snake plant, the monstera and the bird of paradise. And the reason why I love these plants, a couple different reasons, but I'll start with the snake plant. This one, you, you can't kill it. The only way you kill it is if you overlove it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I, I think this is such an important thing to remember. And because, you know, when we have a, when we have pets or we have children, you know, they cry, they bark, they let us know when they need something. Plants are silent, right? Yes. And they, you need to be more proactive. And sometimes taking a step back is more important than constantly watering or loving your plant because plants can do it themselves. They've been around a long, lot longer than we have. Yeah. So the snake plant is one of those. It's an exercise in patience because you don't need to water that thing for months. Like I water mine maybe, maybe once a month when I remember. And it's a low light plant that can tolerate brighter light and lower light conditions. And it's such a great starter plant for anyone who's really unsure of themselves. Uh, the next it. one is, is that Monstera. And this one is cool because it's it's got that kind of glamour that you see with the beautiful fenestrated leaves. And it's something that kind of looks wild and jungly and, and very exotic looking. It, it hails from Central America and Costa Rica and has such a distinguished look to it, but is relatively low maintenance. It is a plant that thrives in the understory in the wild. It actually will climb up trees, um, which is pretty cool and adds a nice kind of a difference in, in leaf shape and texture. Uh, compared to some other plants that you might have. And the last one is the bird of paradise, which when you think like lush tropical vacation, like that is what you think of these big, gorgeous, full looking leaves. And that one is is relatively low maintenance too. I have one in my bedroom right now and uh, it's under a grow light, but it gives me very little trouble. I water it once every seven to 10 days or so and they thrive. So those three together work really well because when you're designing a plant corner or something like that, I usually play around with sizes. Mm-hmm. So a snake plant's going to be smaller, the monstera might be medium, and then you've got the nice tall, you know, mine's nine feet tall, but oh, wow. a beautiful bird of paradise to fill it out. It, they really look nicely in combination together. 
I love that. And I have a Monstera. I don't have a snake plant or a bird of paradise, but I loved how my Monstera has, it's lasted a really long time. It's been super durable. I actually even, um, I recently moved from California uh, back to Seattle. Um, and I, you know, was so torn about how we were going to transport our plants, but we were able to get a lot of them in, um, the back of the, the bed of our truck and covered them. And I was like praying, like, please let my plants survive. <laughs> um, but they did, you wow. know, they, they, they were able to survive and this Monstera is thriving. I actually have it, um, in my office with me right now. And it's like in my zoom background and everyone I talked to was like, Oh, it's so on brand. You know, it's beautiful. It yeah. looks very brightly. <laughs> so we got to love <laughs> Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Now kudos to you for, for making the, the drive with the plants. I was moving from New York to LA and I didn't know what, what was I going to do with a hundred plus plants. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What um, did you do? It's, it's funny. I actually, um, I, uh, sold all of them for charity, uh, for oh. different, uh, you know, different organizations related to the black lives matter movement. Obviously that was around the same time and, uh, found a lot of really good plant parents who were willing to overpay for the, for the cause of social justice in our society. So it was, it was a good, good situation. I love that. Yes. You oftentimes will find like, you know, if your friends are moving or, you know, people aren't able to take plants. Yes, definitely. Like, you know, re reduce, reuse, recycle folks, like go find a, a healthy plant. And of course this can be, um, you know, if you're, if you're getting one, um, you know, as a gift, it's also a lot cheaper, obviously, right. Than going out and buying a big, more established plant. Um, so I'd love to know, okay, so you've given some tips on plants to look for. Um, so once people get these, uh, plants home, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some common, um, you know, missteps you might see. I know you talked a little bit about overwatering, but can you tell us more about how we as, you know, sort of the average, um, average plant parents that don't have a ton of information can understand more about like the watering level of that plant. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a couple kind of easy pitfalls that plant parents fall into when they bring their plants home. But the first thing, even before the watering that I always recommend is quarantine your plants. And oh, it sounds funny because, okay. you know, we, we now are very used to the word quarantining. <laughs> um, but even when you bring that plant home, the temptation is to put it in the spot right away, introduce it to the rest of your plant family, all that stuff. But you don't know necessarily if that plant has something, whether a disease or a pest that could kind of spread okay. to the rest of your, of your plants. So I always will, will put mine uh, either pretty far away from the rest of the gang or maybe even in the bathroom. Fortunately, I have a light in the bathroom, which is great. Um, but it's uh, it's something that's good to practice because you don't want to put the rest of your, your plants at risk. So that's what I recommend first. Um, and then when you bring it home, repotting is very stressful for some people and also very stressful on the plant, to be honest. Uh, transplant shock is a real thing, but learning how to effectively repot or pot up in some cases, which is where you're not necessarily pulling out all those roots all at once. You're just kind of putting it into a bigger pot and putting fresh soil around it, giving it a good water there. But once that plant is established and you've, you've repotted it or cached it, which is when you put you know the nursery pot inside a, a bigger planter, which a lot of people do, um, then you want to just start observing, right? Don't worry so much about sticking to an exact schedule because sometimes those watering schedules get you in trouble. Because, you know, the care card says, you know, you need to water every seven to 10 days, but it was cloudy every single day, or there was construction next door and you didn't get the light there. You're going to end up overwatering your plant because you were focused on a schedule versus what's actually happening. 
So what I try to do is check in with all my plants every single day, which can take a while, (laughs) depending (laughs) on how many I have at the time. But the goal is just to feel around the soil. Sometimes I stick a chopstick in there to see if it comes out clean, time to water. If not, I'm going to let it be. I just try and react to the conditions and what the plant is telling me versus a very specific schedule or a lot of my clients have, you know, calendar alerts and things to water their plants. But I try and keep it a little bit more uh, informal than that. Yeah, I do the same thing. I um, I definitely used to be an overwaterer. And I uh, one of my good friends is, has a bit more of a green thumb than I do. And so, yeah, he was telling me the same thing. So I've gotten to now where I can kind of just tell by looking at them whether or not they look like they're thirsty, basically. Um, and then I go and I go and water them because most of the plants I have in my home are not, um, you know, are not super water you know, water intensive ones, if you will. Um, one thing I also would love to ask you about is fertilizing, um, because that's another piece that, you know, I didn't even know that I was supposed to be doing at first. And of course, different plants, you know, need different levels. Some don't need it at all. Um, so what are your thoughts on sort of at home fertilization? Yeah, you, you got to feed your plants. Yeah, it's just the the nature of of the beast here. And the analogy I use all the time is that, you know, imagine that, uh, in the spring and summer, which is the peak growing season for most of your plants, that's basically plant puberty. And if okay. you think back to when you were in puberty back in the day, right? M- I know myself, I could not get enough food out of the fridge. Yeah, that's <laughs> <all> right. <laughs> and basically, the plant is pulling nutrients from the soil. And that soil eventually will become depleted. And the plant's going to look there and basically go to its soil grocery store and be like, hey, where- where's the food? And it's going to have the aisles looking like they did at the start of the pandemic, where (laughs) just empty shelves, right? So the the goal here is to observe your plant's growth. And if you notice that, you know, hey, it's been growing a lot for a couple of years, and all of a sudden it stops growing, might be time to start fertilizing. And I usually start around April 1st or so, and do it every two to four weeks, depending on the plant. But uh, it's definitely a practice that you need to consider, and your plants will certainly thank you for it. Yeah, I love that. And there's so many different formulations of things that you can find. I used to, at one point, use to concentrate that I would sort of mix up with water. That can be easy to do. Um, there's also really interesting powdered versions that you can find at your local nursery. Um, so yeah, I mean, if in doubt, I always love to go ask whoever's working there too, because they can kind of point you in the right direction of which specific thing might be good to buy. Um, so yeah, we talked about watering, fertilization. Um, I wonder if there's any other tips, maybe about light sources potentially. Yeah, light light can be tricky um, yeah. because seasonally it changes. So you're going to have to be able to you know, take note of those things over the course of 12 months to really understand what lighting you have inside your home. And one kind of funny client story that I have is I have a client who uh, had a, I think it, I think it was a fiddle leaf fig, which needs a lot of light. And yep. she showed it to me and it was clearly very far gone. There was, there was no recovery. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I said, well, why did you put it in front of this, this window with this giant tree here? And she said she bought it before the tree was in bloom. So oh. all of a sudden that tree develops its leaves. It's deciduous, right? So come spring, its leaves come in and it was full shade. So being aware of what's happening sometimes outside of your home is just as important as what's happening inside of your home. But uh, the best advice I have for light is to, to use the Compass app on your phone just okay. to be able to determine what kind of exposure that you have. And the exposure families 
differ, but Southern is best. It's the brightest, most direct light. Uh, then you've got East, which is a little bit more gentle, that morning light, which is very soft. You've got the West, which is the afternoon sunset light, which is a little bit more harsh. And then North, which is pretty indirect. And anytime I have a client, I say, listen, just because you have indirect light or you're on the first floor, maybe so you don't get a ton of light, it's not the end of the world. The LED grow light technology is so good nowadays that you're able to kind of what I call activate different areas of your home for growing. And with these bulbs being the way that they are now, I'll actually go to clients and, and say, hey, you know, that lamp fixture you have over there, why don't we put a grow light there? You're not going to know the difference. And now you've created a whole new growing zone in your home that you didn't have access to previously. Oh, so wow. it unlocks a lot of great uh, plant possibilities in that process. That's awesome. So you're saying you could basically take um, an existing lamp and just kind of switch out the bulb. Is that is that what you mean? Absolutely. And oh, you know, I had no idea. With, How cool! With some of these clients, right? You know, they've got these giant lamps that have these huge covers. You'll never actually see the bulb itself. Yeah. So you can take some of these bulbs, and they're not the purple bulbs that you're thinking of, like grow light <laughs> bulbs, right? They're, yeah. they're full spectrum. So they have all the spectrum that the, the plant needs to survive. You screw that right in, and then you're good to go. That's so cool. Because, yeah, when, when you were talking about LED lights, I was getting, like, you know, um, more of the, like, hydroponic kind of thoughts yeah, in there, the, right? The red and blue. Yeah. There you go. Um, and even just, like, you know, stuff that might not fit, like, the aesthetic. Because, obviously, like, one reason why people love to get plants other than, you know, the environmental and mental health benefits, of course, they want the aesthetic, right? <laughs> They're doing it for for Instagram. They love it. And so, I would, I would imagine, um, you know, being able to put uh, these bulbs in existing lamps is just an amazing sort of decor hack. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, having some good plant hacks is, is so important. And especially when you're dealing with, with folks who are living in, in tight quarters, like the apartments in New York City, for example, you might only have one window <laughs> that you have. And if it's not facing south or east or west, you might be in trouble in terms of what plants you can use to survive there. So um, another fun hack that I that I always love is actually buying two of the same plant and switching them out in different areas of your home. So for example, if you're taking a, a ZZ plant, which is very hardy, low light tolerant, um, will only needs water once every two to three weeks. And let's say you have limited real estate by your window. You buy two of the same plant, same exact pot, whatever you want to do. And then every two weeks, you just switch them out every time you water. That way, you know, people would come over to my apartment in New York and they'd be like, how do you have a ZZ plant growing in your windowless bathroom? Yep. I'm like, well, you know, I'm just a plant whisperer. I, <laughs> I just get it. There you go. And it's just a great little hack to kind of bring green to some uncommon spaces in your home. I love that. And you're right. I have totally seen people that do that and I didn't realize they were doing it. So I thought that they were just magical, uh, magical plant people. But I love that <laughs> hack. You've kind of exposed them now. <laughs> I mean, amazing. hey, maybe they're just buying a new plant each That's time. True. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Um, and yeah, I think it's a good point because oftentimes we live in smaller spaces and we might feel like intimidated by the real estate that some plants get versus others. So I love this tip because, you know, if you do it, you know, make sure that you're, you're keeping track of how much time uh, plants are, are spending in different areas. You can kind of spread the love that way, which is amazing. Um, one more question I had around the plant specifically are pet friendly plants. Cause I, I, I think you've got a pet. I have a few dogs myself. So are there any plants that you feel like are really common right now that are not good ideas to bring into your home? If you're a plant owner, like any specifics there, you know, 
it's it's funny. Most of the plants that we bring into our home are not pet friendly. Okay. You know, e- even like your your monstera, mm-hmm. your fiddly fig, some of these other ones, they're not pet friendly. But it's all about knowing your pet and having yep. the trust there. And I will say for for those that have cats, it's a totally different story because they're slightly demonic and will climb and yep. they'll reach the top shelf and knock over your plants and. You know, it can be a little challenging, but there are certainly some types of plants like the spider plant, uh, parlor palm, calatheas, lots of good options that if you really are concerned, start with this. And if it's, it's the first time that your pet is interacting with the plant, always start with the non-toxic varieties just to see how they respond. Because I had a dog in New York City and he couldn't care less about yep. the plants. I had some of the most, you know, toxic plants out there, but he didn't care. So it's all about knowing your pet. And if you have any questions about that, you can just go to the ASPCA and just see like, okay, what is considered, you know, super toxic versus, you know, oh, this is something that if they ate it, it's just a little stomach ache or something. But one tip I, I love to give is is to provide a distraction plant. Okay. Um, so this can be one of those pet friendly plants. I know spider plants, cats really like them because they kind of dangle and they can play with them that, like that. But also, you know, cat grass is something that a lot of plant parents use because if there's a more appealing option and they're not bored with that option, then they're not going to bother any of your other plant collection. That's such a good, it's such a good tip. And you've heard about these types of uh, distraction techniques used with parenting. (laughs) So I love this. This is amazing. (laughs) We're going to do a little bit of plant parenting, but also pet parenting here on this podcast. So that's amazing. I Um, I might have to get my future kid a a distraction plant so he doesn't destroy (laughs) the other one. There we go. Same, same here. We'll we'll make a pact. We'll both do that. That's amazing. Um, So if I wanted to switch gears slightly towards gardening, because I know that you have published some awesome content on Instagram, um, you know, on reels, et cetera, around, um, you know, I love your buy one, grow one method for sort of regrowing <laughs> plants like romaine. Um, we've also shared some similar tips on Brightly's TikTok um, and Instagram reels. And so I'm curious to know, like, if you have any kind of quick sort of indoor gardening tips um, for people who are, you know, in small spaces and are looking to do more of this, um, grow your own food. Yeah, you know, growing food indoors is is such an amazing thing if you have the space to do it. Yeah. But even if you have just a little windowsill, right? You don't have to have a full vertical farm hydroponic operation to be able to grow a little bit of food in your home. And are you going to be able to feed yourself for the entire year? Probably not. <laughs> but there's still plenty of things you can do, and there's nothing more rewarding than taking a few, you know, leaves of basil and, and sprinkling over your, your dish that night, you know? You're so, right. There's very few things that are more rewarding than that. I totally agree with you. <laughs> exactly. But there, there are also, it's devastating when you're making pesto and you're like, oh my God, my whole basil oh, yes. is gone now. <laughs> yes. Uh, pesto is it. worse <laughs> in yes, terms of much, harvesting more, your much, basil. <laughs> yeah. It's a little more devastating. Um, but yeah, I, I think anytime you have a windowsill, take advantage of that. And you know, scallions in water is a common thing that people were doing all over the pandemic. But like, it doesn't have to be just that. You can actually grow them just like your house plants. And as an experiment, I actually planted, just being the plant nerd that I am, I just planted uh, lacinato kale, that dinosaur kale, underneath my fiddly fig. Really? And I was like, I just want to see if it grows. And I was afraid to eat it because <laughs> I just didn't know uh, necessarily how the, the toxic fig might be interacting with those roots. But it grew really, really well. Um, So if you have a little space and want to do a little herb garden, I love cilantro, thyme. Basil needs a lot of sun, so it's a little bit trickier. 
but those are great options just to have as casual herbs that you can come by, pick a little bit, and then grow with. But if you really want to do a little bit more, I would definitely recommend a hydroponic system. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of uh, countertop versions and also standing versions that don't take up too much space in your home that you can actually grow a sizable amount of food. And the reason I recommend hydroponic is because I actually tried to grow cherry tomatoes in my living room in New York. Okay. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, like they got huge. Like I had about <laughs> seven foot plants. But the problem is, is you're watering so much that you're going to attract fungus gnats and other things that are mm. going to be rather problematic. Most of your houseplants, you're watering once a week. Tomatoes, I'm watering, you know, once every couple of days. So it was problematic in that sense. But with a hydroponic system, there's no soil. So you're not having to worry about the mess, not having to worry about overwatering. And I actually, I work with a company called Lettuce Grow, which makes these amazing, beautiful farm stands that now come with uh, LED rings. So it kind of looks like a like a lettuce spaceship when you look okay. at it. Yeah. Uh, but you, it produces so much food. It is crazy. I have one on uh, my rooftop in uh, the Venice area and I could bring it indoors if I was, you know, in a New York climate and grow all year round. And that can be cauliflower, romaine, bok choy, tot soy, edible flowers, you name it. And it's actually quite a lot of food. Um, so if anyone wants to really go all out, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. I love that you bring up lettuce grow. Um, we actually just got connected with their team. And so Lisa and I are going to try out, um, oh. their, their stands. So I'm so oh excited. My gosh. <laughs> you are going, you are going to love it. You're never going to go back. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I can't wait. Um, yeah, we're actually going to have um, one of the founders on the podcast later too. So look oh, forward Jacob? to that. Oh, yeah. Jacob, we're having Jacob oh, over. <laughs> J- Jacob and I, we we go on beach walks and you know get coffee like at least a couple times a month. Oh, that's so fun. You'll have to tell yeah, him what we said. Hey, but what a, cool, what a cool invention, um, you know, that they, they thought about that because I think, you know, I do, you do see more and more, um, you know, products entering the space to help people do, do this in an easier way. And, you know, especially when we think about small spaces, like you mentioned, it can be so crucial to get the right kind of equipment um, so that you can really, you know, maximize the amount of food you're able to grow. Um, and so to kind of, um, you know, to, to wrap up a kind of very interesting conversation about sort of DIYs. One thing that we also uh, saw was your DIY grow bag um, that you you made <laughs> using the old tote bag. So can you tell us a little bit about this and sort of how you how you came about this uh, this little DIY project? Yes. So for me, you know, if you look at my Instagram, yes, there's a lot of plants there, but I'm an environmentalist at heart, and plants are stepping stones to living a more eco conscious, low waste lifestyle. And you know being in my profession, you get invited to, you know, a bunch of events and they're always giving out swag bags and this and that. And there's always the canvas bag. Like how many canvas bags can I fit in my closet? Yes. And I'm sure you have a similar bag of bags lying around somewhere. Yes, the in your bag own of home. bags. <laughs> the bag of bags. And I looked at this and I, and I looked at, you know, some of the trends in grow bag gardening, which is a great way to grow. And basically you're, you're growing outside of a plastic or a ceramic planter and you're actually growing in a, in a bag that's kind of breathable and the roots really like it. And I said, you know what, why don't I just kind of cut the handles off, reposition them, um, kind of make my own little grow bag here. And I took this bag of bags, I cut it up, I tested out my sewing skills, which are very, very below the average <laughs> and <laughs> made a grow bag. And I've, I've got a tomato plant right now that is growing great in that. And the canvas 
it's such a sturdy material. It's very, um, you know, resistant to water and the elements outside. It's on my roof, so it's handling wind and sun and all this stuff. And it's such a great way of, of repurposing and upcycling something that I know so many of us in the sustainability community have a lot of. Yes, we all have so many bags. I still think I'm always torn about them, about getting canvas bags, because I feel like you're right. We have so many of them, but then sometimes I'm like, well, you know, maybe it's slightly better than getting a bunch of plastic bags. I don't know. I think the jury's still out just because we have so many of them, right? Um, but yeah. to, to kind of think a little bit more, you know, as, as we as we wrap up our conversation, I know on your website you say being a plant parent is like is a stepping stone to living a more eco-conscious lifestyle. So um, on our podcast, we like to talk about the holistic journey that people are on as conscious consumers. So I wonder if you can expand a little bit on that statement. Like, mm. why do you think that being the plant parent is is really that stepping stone? You know, I, I use myself as a case study and I also use my clients because I didn't care about the environment prior to caring about plants. And it was putting those plants in my garden for the first time and realizing that, oh, I have a, I have a connection to this and I have a connection to nature in a, in a different way that I did not consider before. And I always say like, how are we supposed to protect the planet when we are so disconnected from the actual earth we're trying to protect? And I think something as small as a little plant sitting on your desk at work can make you think differently about the big plant we all live on. Yeah. And from, from there gardening, um, you know, I got into the house plants and then I said, you know what, let's, let's try and be a little bit more plastic free and became virtually plastic free aside from, you know, the nursery pots and things that are kind of inevitable in the plant space, which is changing, which is good. Um, but then I said, you know what, now let's, let's go plant-based. Um, let's start, uh, you know, driving an electric car and, you know, it, it was a stepping stone for me. And I saw it with my clients who, who started out with house plants which is a little easier and more accessible than just gardening in your backyard. Not everyone has access. Um, and they said, you know, they come back to me a year later and say, Hey, you know, because of you, I have started, you know, eating more plant-based meals and I go to the farmer's market now and I bring my reusable produce bags and seeing them transition to that is so rewarding for me. And it's a big reason I do what I do. And I think it just starts with having a single plant in your life. Yeah. And I think it makes us think, I mean, just what you just mentioned, it makes us really think more holistically about plants, about pesticides, about what does the term organic mean? Mm. You know, it's a really interesting way to to think, you know, even more from a curious perspective. And we, we talk about that frequently on this podcast, which is unlocking the curiosity you might have or your friends might have about eco-friendly living. Like you don't have to have all the answers. None of us do. Um, it's, it's a gray, it's a gray space in many ways, and we're all on this journey together. So I think picking hobbies like becoming a plant parent, even if it's just to one plant to start, I think is really great, uh, way, way to start on the journey. So I love that advice and I love that tip. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I think this is about all the time we have today, Nick. Um, but, you know, uh, for the last question I, I want to throw at you, we, we ask this with all of our guests, which is, I wonder if you could share one of your favorite eco-friendly tips or even eco-friendly brands or products that you use on a daily basis. And it does not even have to be related to, to plants. <laughs> it doesn't have to be related to no, plants. No, no, whatever you'd uh, like. <laughs> so, I mean... My whole life is related to plants. So we'll, well, we'll make it plant adjacent. But <laughs> I, I think you know, going, going the fashion route, because I think people forget that you know, clothes are just plants that we 
don't eat. Right? Oh, that's so I mean, good. We have to make a quote out of that. <laughs> yeah. And, and being really conscious about the, the clothing that, that we choose to purchase new. I buy a lot of things secondhand. I think thrifting mm-hmm. is like the most exciting experience someone can have. Um, but when you do buy something new, really making sure that it's as, as conscious of the decision as possible. And um, I, I love Allbirds just because, you know, obviously they make great, great shoes and, and now clothing. But the thing I like the most about them is that they are fully transparent. Like yes. their new shoes will literally tell you how many tons of carbon were used to make that shoe. And they're, you know, now going to be, you know, carbon neutral. I think they achieved that last year. But um, having the the demand for our companies to be and have that level of transparency is so important. And it's not just clothing, it's furniture, it's, you know, the cars that we drive, it's every little thing can be viewed. If you view it through a plant lens and putting plants first in our lives, we're going to end up making a lot of really small changes, which will lead to some big results. I love that. I also am a huge fan of Allbirds. I used to, back when they kind of first came out, I had this pair and I'd wear them all around. And my friends were like, why is she so obsessed with these shoes? And I was just like, because they're insanely comfortable and it's like you're wearing slippers all the time and they're good for the environment. Yeah. Total Allbirds fan here Laura, as well. Laura, if you want a pair, I get massive discounts. Oh, so awesome. Send me, send me, uh, you know, if you want a shirt, sweater, pair of shoes, send it to me and your address and I'll get that shipped out to you. That is so funny. Well, I appreciate that, Nick. But anyway, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I learned so much and I'm excited for our listeners to kind of dig in, understand some of those myths that we were busting left and right and, and really get into it. So, um, audience, you can follow Nick at farmer Nick on Instagram. He's got some awesome tips for you to get into. Um, so thanks so much. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off all products in Brightly's brand new shop full of planet positive swaps for your home. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.